Uh, The book in your Bible called Titus uh, is named after the man it is written to. Maybe you gathered that in verse 4, to Titus, my true child. Uh, We call it a book because of how it appears in our Bible along with other books, Uh, but uh, all of these books share different genres. Some are uh, narratives, uh, historical narratives, some are poetic. The book of Titus, like many of the books in the New Testament, it's a letter. And when you think of a letter, think of the kind of letters you used to write. It really is a letter in that same pattern. It was written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament, pretty much half of the New Testament. And all of what Paul wrote that we've got preserved is in the form of letters. And it really helps as you read these things to read them as if uh, it's a conversation, a letter from one man uh, to another or to a group. So today we're going to look just at the introduction of the letter of Titus, uh, partly as an introduction to the whole letter, uh, but mainly as a study in itself. When Paul writes a letter, every introduction follows a formula. Uh, And you can find this if you go uh, between Romans and Philemon, the book after Titus. Uh, They're they're your 13 letters of Paul all in a row. Look at the first few verses and there's a formula to all of them and they go like this. It starts with the word Paul and usually he describes himself as a servant or an apostle or sometimes both, which he does in Titus. He will then say to, who the letter is to, um, and usually uh, that, is, um, that is either to the saints uh, or to a church, so most of them are to uh, groups of people, but then the last four of his letters, two to Timothy, one to Titus and one to a man named Philemon, uh, then he'll obviously say, call them out by name, as he does in verse four of Titus. And then he says, grace and peace, and then he starts to speak. And every one of them follows this exact formula. Paul's letters to Titus Uh, Paul's letter to Titus closely follows this formula but with a couple of interesting variations when you compare it to all the others. First we're going to talk for a bit about what makes Titus's introduction different from the others. Then I'm going to talk to you about about the content of his introduction. So what, what is different about Paul's introduction to his letter to Titus? And the main thing that I want to point out here is simply that it's longer. If you put them all side by side, as I did in a document during the week, uh, the, the, his introduction, uh, particularly as he describes himself and his role, uh, it is longer as he describes it to Titus than to others. I'm going to suggest that the main reason uh, or the main content uh, of Paul's introduction of himself uh, is, uh, and the main reason he spends so much time in it is, is that Paul's purpose for writing flows out of how he defines himself who he understands himself to be before God, what he understands his role, his God-given role in this life is. These things define uh, how he understands himself and how he lives and the things he seeks to impart to Titus. But first, how, how is this introduction longer than others and why is that even interesting? Why is it even worth commenting on? See, in all but two of Paul's 13 letters... Each of those three points, Paul, two, grace and peace, in all but two of them, all of those three points are finished in the first three verses, more or less a verse for each. There are only two outliers. Paul's letter to the Romans, that's the real outlier, it takes him seven verses to get through that much stuff. And then there's this letter to Titus which takes four verses. 
And what makes it interesting that Paul takes up so much space in his introduction to Titus? Well, in both his letter to the Romans and his letter to Titus, Paul's delay in getting to the point, his delay in getting to the grace and peace and then the rest, uh, is, a, is made up in his introduction to himself. He describes who he is, what he understands his role to be and his purpose. Now, the fact that he takes so long to do this when he writes to the Romans is not surprising at all. At the time of Paul's writing, uh, Paul doesn't know the Christians in the church in Rome. They don't know him. They have never met. And so he spends a good amount of time giving his credentials to the church in Rome so that they can know that he is the real deal, he's a man to be listened to. And also, Paul's letter to the Romans is a long letter. Uh, so it's a little wonder that details get stretched out. He takes a lot of space, and so even little things might take a bit more space to do that. Space wasn't his concern, time wasn't his concern. It was detail when he was writing to the Romans. But the difference, when we look at this letter to Titus, is that while Paul was unknown to the Romans, he was really well known to Titus. They were travelling companions, they were partners in ministry... And yet for some time, Paul, for some reason, Paul spends three verses just describing himself, introducing himself to Titus. Titus knows Paul very well. And although Paul's letter to the Romans is really long, which might explain why some things might get stretched out and he doesn't feel like the pressure of time or space, his letter to Titus is really short and punchy. Uh, it's one of his shortest letters. An illustration of just how short this letter is, uh, Paul spends most of his letter laying, um, in most of Paul's letters, he spends a good chunk at the beginning laying down a rich theological foundation for what he's going to say next and then at some point a few chapters in he'll say, therefore, and then he'll do the practical punchy stuff. But in Titus, the therefore, well, he doesn't say the words therefore, but it starts in verse 5. And from verse 5, it is just punchy instruction. Do this, do that, this is how you ought to live. So I think it is interesting that Paul spends as much time as he does cramming detail into his self-introduction to a man who already knows him very well and in a letter that is otherwise abrupt and to the point. There are times when you read Paul's writings uh, that you can sense that he's getting a little carried away with the subject. Uh, he might sort of pause and, and spruik on for a little bit. He'll be halfway through a sentence and take off with enthusiasm on a certain topic. So it could be that I'm just reading way too much into uh, these couple of sentences at the start of Titus. After all, people are allowed to write in different ways on different days without having to justify themselves. But normally when Paul gets carried away with enthusiasm, it's about God. It's about God's glory or God's generous grace, his surprising love. When Paul spills more ink introducing himself, in other cases it's either to the Romans who don't know him or to the Corinthians who are sick of him or to the Galatians who are suspicious of him. But to Titus who knows him well, and he's not at all sick or suspicious of him, he gives this detail. Now, I already said Paul writes this long introduction for himself because his purpose for writing flows out of how he defines himself. Who he understands himself to be before God defines and informs what comes next. 
one of the reasons um, one of the reasons I say this is because of verse five, which we didn't read just now. But this is what comes immediately after uh, Paul's introduction: grace and peace. He says, "This is why I left you in Crete, so that you may put what remained into order." and appoint elders in every town. Now, as I study uh, this stuff, most people read this sentence all on its own. It's a, it's a clean break from verses 1 to 4. Verse 5, bam, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might. This is why, and so that, is all about Titus ordering the church and appointing elders. But that leaves me a little unsatisfied, because putting in order and appointing elders aren't really a why. He says, this is why. But these aren't why things, these are what things. This is what you must do. So what if we take... uh, So this would make sense, for example. This is why I left you in Crete. Put what remained in order. That would make sense, without saying, uh, so that you might. Or you can leave the other one out. I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders. That would make sense. But when they're both in there, it feels like he's referring to something else. There's a why that lies outside of this sentence. And my suggestion, my theory, is that the why lies in verses 1 to 3. I already said that in most of Paul's letters, he starts with a theological explanation, which can sometimes take up chapters and chapters. And then he springs into saying, therefore, and lays out all his practical outworkings. My theory is that Paul isn't wasting precious space on a long-winded self-introduction. He's using an economy of space in his introduction to promptly lay down some important theological principles that, as far as he's concerned, naturally flow out into the ordering of the church and the ordering of the community of faith. So we're going to look at the actual text now uh, of Paul's introduction, verses 1 to 4, and I'll I'll read it again because I think it's helpful. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Saviour. I'm going to comment just on a few details. Servant and apostle, the connection of faith, knowledge and godliness, the hope of eternal life, the word through preaching, And Paul talking to Titus as his true child. So first of all, looking in verse 1 at the servant apostle. This is how he designates himself. Now, this is not unique to Titus. This is how Paul uh, refers to himself in all the letters, either servant or apostle, and sometimes both. But what, what can we pull from both of these words? Servant literally means slave. So we're not thinking butler you know, um, house help. This is someone who is owned, a slave. He is owned and compelled 
by God. Paul is not a free man. He exists to do God's will for him. We sung just before this about Jesus Christ, the servant king. Jesus, in establishing his kingdom, because he truly is a king, has set up in there a paradigm of service and submission, where each is obliged uh, and submitting to one another. Paul sees himself as falling well and truly within that paradigm. He is a servant. In this case, he's speaking speaking of himself as a servant to God, a slave to God, but you also form the opinion, uh, the view very quickly as you read the rest of Paul, is that he feels himself to be also obliged to others, to the whole community of faith. And he also calls himself, right alongside servant, apostle. Now, apostle uh, is a grand term as we read it, apostle. We don't use this word anywhere else. Uh, and so it feels like this, an, an extremely lofty title. And, and truly in Scripture, it is used as a deliberate designation. It's, a, it's used in a technical sense. It is a title. But the meaning of the word is, is sent one, someone who is sent. And so you can see in that uh, also a, a connection between this service paradigm that he's talked about before. Uh, he works for another uh, but uh, there is also in this uh, a sense of dignity, uh, not a loss of dignity which you would normally associate with being a slave, uh, but an honour. The fact that Paul is owned and directed by God doesn't strip him of his dignity. He's set apart by God uh, with a special purpose. His purpose is to, uh, as he goes on to say, and we'll look at it in a moment, to advance the faith of God's elect. That is to seek out God's chosen ones and bring them to faith and then to feed the faith of believers so that they grow into maturity. See, Paul belongs not only to God but to the whole community of faith, to to God's family. Uh, Now, this is Paul as an apostle. What does this mean for us, for Paul to call himself an apostle? Does that mean that we too share uh, Paul's apostleship If we don't share his apostleship, spoiler, we don't, uh, do we also, in any sense, uh, share his role for the community of faith? And as we read on in Titus, and we'll get to this in coming weeks, uh, one of the themes of Titus is this strong sense of obligation that exists between the community of faith. And so especially um, when we get into chapter 2, it talks about uh, older women's obligation to the younger women. And the obligation that older men have to younger men in the church. And, and, uh, and this obligation that each of us have to one another. So I'm going to suggest that, you know, Paul sees himself as being chosen by God, set apart specifically for this duty and role as an apostle to feed the faith of the other elect, the other chosen ones of God. But even though we don't bear the title of apostle... We exist in this same community that Paul sees himself a, you know, a healthy, small part of. We are each a cog in that machine, each a member of that family. You are always on display. How you live matters. And we'll see this come out again and again in Titus. How you live matters. 
Your faith is not a purely private affair. Have you heard me say that before? You are always on display. How you live matters not only in terms of your own faith and your salvation, but to everyone. We are bound to one another. And I want you to think, adults especially, of your obligation to your children and how you live in front of them. And I want you to think of my children and how you live in front of them uh, and one another's children. The, the lives we live set examples and give excuses to kids and young people. So let's take this duty and obligation seriously. How you live matters. Paul says he exists as a servant and apostle uh, for the faith, knowledge and godliness of the elect. So this is the next point. You see how he... And particularly what I'm going to talk about is how he connects each of these things. Faith to knowledge and knowledge to godliness. He says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. People sometimes criticise Christianity because we refer to it as a faith. And then people don't think about what we mean by the word faith and take what they think of the word faith, which is something like wishful thinking uh, or something that you use to fill gaps in knowledge or understanding. That is not mainly what faith is. Faith is grounded in knowledge, in knowledge of facts and information. Uh, and more than that, not just knowledge of you know, details and doctrines, but true relational knowledge. Almost always how this word knowledge is used uh, in the New Testament. Relational knowledge of truly knowing God. But can you see how faith is not about brainlessness? Faith is connected to knowledge. We must know the truth. We must sometimes uh, submit to teaching and learning, devote ourselves to uh, to further our understanding. And then notice the connection then with faith, knowledge, flowing on to godliness. A crucial step. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. We've all seen, haven't we, people who have great knowledge, great doctrine, great uh, information in their head and they can spill it out at any time at will and they can embarrass the rest of us with our ignorance, but whose life is a shoddy mess, who are perfect examples of hypocrisy. But friends, can I encourage you, do not throw the baby out with the bathwater because you know one or two people like that. And I know we all do. Because by far the more common correlation, I have found at least, is that sound knowledge of the truth does correspond with godliness. I have seen, I, I, I know, uh, I think particularly of one of my uh, very good lecturers when I was at QTC. He was a pure nerd, pure nerd. He was the most bookish man uh, you can imagine. You can tell in speaking to him that uh, by natural inclination and wiring, he has almost no uh, energy for people. And yet, by conviction, because he understood that his call from God is to love his brothers and sisters in the church, 
he would find energy from somewhere to give in the most pure uh, sense of, of, of giving of himself. And you could tell uh, that it was awkward for him, but you could not help but feel loved by him because he was compelled to give by what he knew. He was compelled to love and to be patient, even though that was not at all related to his natural instincts. So just because in some people uh, their knowledge doesn't match their words, it would be an, uh, their, their lives, it would be an awful mistake for us to then say knowledge doesn't matter. Knowledge is pointless or meaningless. Because that's a trend as well. But no, more often than not, knowledge does accord with godliness, but it is up to the individual to make sure that they go together in your life. And it's up to us as a community, as we are, bound to one another, living for one another, living on display to the world as well, uh, that we do the same. He talks about the hope of eternal life. In hope of eternal life. Now, I don't think Paul talks very much more about eternal life for the rest of the book, but this, this concept of eternal life, this concept of a future hope... Uh, is really all through the pages of Scripture. What Paul does talk about a lot through the book of Titus is self-control. To almost every group of people that he calls out individually, he says, live with self-control, live with discipline. This sense, which is so foreign to the way uh, our our neighbours and and in many cases even we ourselves will live, this sense that we are to deny ourselves, uh, to go without for a time, because there is a hope, a future hope. It's this very real uh, concept uh, of delayed gratification, that at times you forego the easy, cheap pleasure now for the sake of something that's to come, a thing that has been promised to us and secured by God. So that is a theme we're going to see come out in Titus. But let me encourage you as well that eternal life, as I read it, and, you know, and if you read it in its various contexts throughout the Bible, eternal life is not only a thing that starts when you die. Often we read eternal life and we substitute in this word afterlife. Uh, eternal life is, is the heaven stuff and all the stuff now is, you know, is just pain and longing. But Jesus, when he talks about eternal life, he says, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full that you may really live. And so I understand from Jesus that eternal life is something uh, that is built into a future hope, as Paul talks about it in Titus, you know, a longing and a waiting for a fulfilment and a kept promise, but it is something that begins now, a fullness of life. And so this idea of eternal life isn't only delayed gratification, it is the connection, the interface between instant gratification and delayed gratification. It is ultimate satisfaction and gratification because living, uh, because look at Paul who lived as a servant, uh, one who was punished for his faith, and tell me that he was sad because he was not. He was a joy filled man who was overjoyed to count himself worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus, to belong to Christ and live for him and pour himself out for the community of faith 
that he belonged to. And so this hope of eternal life is not only this afterlife thing, although it does call for self-discipline now. Eternal life is life to the full. A couple of final points. He says, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Saviour. See how much language language is in that sentence. God never lies, never speaks an untruth. God has promised, that's making a verbal guarantee. At the proper time manifested, he's displayed it, how? Through his word, through preaching, entrusted by the command of God our Saviour. Friends, we call ourselves Emerald Presbyterian Church. Uh, there's a bunch of uh, other uh, adjectives you could use for us, but one of the words that, uh, that you may be familiar with is, is a word called evangelical. Uh, it's a word uh, that, that uh, uh, probably is, is one of the most descriptive explanations for, uh, for how we would define or understand the tradition that we exist in. And, and evangelical churches, uh, it's, uh, it's from the, the Greek word for the good news, uh, the good news message, the gospel, the proclamation, in fact, of Jesus Christ. Uh, the Presbyterian Church is, among other things, we exist in the, in the tradition of preaching and proclamation and the Word of God. We saw through the ministry of Jesus uh, that he came really with two things, with acts of great power of the Holy Spirit uh, and always through preaching. And then in the New Testament, uh, as we go on from the life of Jesus, we see uh, that the great movement of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost came primarily through preaching. Uh, when, uh, when people were, uh, uh, were given gifts by the power of the Holy Spirit to speak the Word of God. And then throughout history, uh, the uh, great movements uh, in the church have come uh, with this sort of connection between prayer and also preaching of the word. If, for example, you were to go into a Catholic church on a Sunday, you would find the preaching uh, is a very small portion of their tradition. They're a more a sacramental tradition, uh, where our faith is fed by the taking of bread and wine uh, and by the discipline of baptism. Uh, whereas, in, whereas in our church, our, our daily bread comes through the word of God, uh, and, uh, and, and we desire to keep that front and centre. And, and, and this is exactly how Paul understands his mission, uh, the shape of his mission, uh, that of course it's, uh, he adorns the word with the way he lives his life, but it's word, that God's word, through preaching. And finally, just to talk for a little bit about how he speaks to Titus. Paul says in verse 4, Titus, my true child in a common faith. There's a few barriers uh, that make this a, this a weird thing for Paul to say. Titus is not his child. And yet he doesn't just say, Titus, my child. Titus, child, you know, um, metaphor, metaphorically speaking. Titus, my true child. There's another barrier, it's cultural. Uh, we learn from other details that we can pick up about Titus is that he was not Jewish. He was Greek. And Paul was a Jew among Jews. Uh, and Titus uh, was a Greek, uh, a Greek convert to Christianity. 
And yet Paul says, my true child. Again, if you read about Titus, uh, other portions of scripture, Paul talks about Titus uh, as his brother. What? Brother and child. He talks about him as well as his, uh, his partner in ministry. But again, we're taught uh, that, um, uh, that we are bound to one another. Paul is bound to Titus uh, in a way that is more true than a father to his biological child. The obligation is even stronger. And look, all of us will know uh, someone, someone, somewhere, maybe even yourself, but someone that you know uh, who was raised not by their biological father or mother, but by uh, perhaps a stepfather or mother, who they then have decided to designate with that title. Because to them, that, that is a more true relationship uh, than the other biological relationship that existed. You know, the early Christians in the first century uh, were accused uh, of incest because brothers would marry sisters. But these weren't biological brothers and sisters. These were brothers and sisters in Christ uh, who, married, uh, who, who would marry each other. The, you know, we throw around words like blokes will call each other bro now. Uh, and this is a carryover from a Christian tradition which was radical in its day. When family is so central uh, to the building blocks of society, uh, you don't play with those words. Uh, you, uh, you, only, you reserve the title brother for your brother and father for your father. These are special sacred titles. And yet Paul uh, sort of transgresses these boundaries for something that is more true. Titus is his true child. We truly are brothers and sisters, really to, to bring this back just to this sense that, that we're going to get again and again through the rest of Titus, that we are bound to one another in a way that is true. We are brothers and sisters in a way that is more true than the way uh, that you are a brother or sister to the person uh, you shared a home with as a child. So I'm looking forward uh, to going through the rest of Titus uh, we've taken a very long time to do just a few short verses. Uh, we are going to go more slowly uh, through Titus than we did through Daniel, uh, but we will find uh, it, is, uh, it is punchy. It is thick and fast uh, with good practical teaching uh, and I'm looking forward to uh, cracking on with the rest of it come next week. But for now, let's pray. God, we thank you for uh, Paul and his uh, clear articulation of his role, who he is, uh, and what flows from that. He understands so clearly that he is not his own, he belongs to you. And, and as he belongs to you, he must submit uh, to the order and structure that you've created where uh, you have designated us as family, brothers and sisters. Father, we pray that you will help us uh, to, uh, to be a church that is that close. They can think of one another not only as friends, although that's important, but we can think of each other as people who are brothers and sisters, who can feel all the depth of joy uh, when brother-sister relationships go well and who also uh, sense and grieve the pain and loss when those relationships uh, are broken or damaged. Uh, we pray that you will uh, help us uh, to feel that sense of obligation for one another, uh, not in a way uh, that is burdensome, but in a way that is liberating, 
uh, as it gives us a license to live the life that you've laid out for us, to live in your perfect ways. And Father, we uh, want to take just a moment to uh, confess our sins, to confess uh, and say sorry for the times that uh, we have not loved our brothers and sisters in, the, in, uh, in our own actions, uh, in, uh, in the ways that we have not ordered our lives uh, around your perfect will and designation for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.